Hello and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mimi You You. As we continue this journey of sharing stories from all over the world, it strikes me that there are so many conversations that we don't have around parts of our lives that we all experience all the time and yet aren't able to open up the conversation. Today's guest is someone I found through my own research who has been talking about grief and healing and overcoming the loss of loved ones in a way that for me, I had never heard before. And I felt that this would be a conversation that could bring huge value to many of our listeners in terms of opening up the stigma and some of the stereotypes around grief, what it is and how we move through it. And with that in mind, I'm thrilled that he said yes and that he's joining me from another side of the planet and is willing to share his story with us. So to kick off the show, I always remind our guests that this is an anonymous first podcast and that we won't reveal your name or location unless you choose to do so. Does that sound okay for you? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for making time to share with all of us and to help us talk about some of the, the themes that we're going to hear from you today. I want to kick off just by asking, why did you say yes? So I reached out to you, total stranger from across the world, <laughs> and you said you'd come along. Let, let us know why. What compelled you to join us today? Yeah, well, first, first of all, uh, thank you for having me, Mimi. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk, talk about grief and grieving. So when you reached out to me, I did say yes right away. And you talked when you reached out to me about about loneliness, about empathy, and people feeling isolated. And that struck a real chord with me because uh, my story is all about grief, about, about child loss, which can be a particularly isolating experience for those of, those of us who are grieving the deaths of our, of our children. Because it's a very, I think, because it's a very scary place to be and our cultures often get it wrong in terms of how to best support people in grief or what people in grief actually need or want. And, and that results in a lot of feelings of isolation and loneliness on top of the grief. So when you invited me to talk, I thought, well, this is, this is a great opportunity to maybe get rid of some of those taboos and to normalize grief a little bit. I would love to encourage you to tell us a little bit more about those three words you said, which is they get it wrong. They mm. get it wrong. How? What does that mean? Well, I think, and I think I'm speaking from personal experience because I got it wrong. <laughs> Before my children were killed, my children were, were killed by a drunk driver in 2019. And thank you. My daughter was 17 and my son was 14. 
And before that happened, I think I had a conception that that people who are experiencing profound loss, they just want to be left alone and they need to just be alone and sort through their feelings, feel sad for a while, and then when they're ready to come back into community. I guess that was my conception. And I think I was also a little scared of people who are grieving any kind of loss. And that made it easier for me to be like, yeah, I'm going to leave them alone. I'll wait for them to reach out to me if, if they feel the need. Mm-hmm. And, and after my kids were killed, I, I discovered that a huge part of the grieving process, certainly for me and for almost everybody I spoke with, involved talking about our children who died and also our own grief to other people. Almost everybody that I spoke to in, in all the grief groups I'd been in all talked about how important it was for them to talk about their kids who died with people who knew them and to hear stories and to hear their names spoken aloud so that they didn't feel like like their life was a some kind of a, a dream, like like their kids never existed. Because if people don't talk about the dead, it starts to feel like maybe you're going crazy. Why aren't they talking about these people? They talked about them when they were alive and now they're gone and people aren't even mentioning their names. That feels very weird and and unsettling and unstabilizing. And Do you think it's accurate that people avoid those conversations because they don't know how to have them with someone who's lost a child? Yeah, yeah, I think... I think absolutely. I think our culture gives us a lot of very bad role models. You know, I I keep watching films and television in which these really tough guys that they lose a kid and then their responses when somebody, you know, later, maybe even months, years later, mentions the name of their child, they snap. Don't say that name. How dare you? And and that there's this idea that if you're really tough. You just don't talk about this person who you loved <laughs> once they're dead because it's it's too much. And I guess it shows it shows like I guess the writers are thinking it shows that this person is even this tough person can't bear to say their name because that's how much they love them. And it's just that's just silly. <laughs> I mean, I talked about my children, Ruby and Hart. I talked about them every day from the crash on, and I need to and the thought of not talking about them just seems uh, madness and certainly not a sign of toughness or a sign that I love them so much. And yet that's, that's where we're bombarded with those images over and over again. And, and we don't get shown images of people interacting with and talking about people in grief, talking to people in grief, maybe because it's not, it doesn't seem, you know, cinemagraphic. I don't know. But I think it's compelling. It's it's the it's the toughest thing to do. You know, it's it's hard for me to talk about Ruby and Hart, but also feels necessary and then also beautiful and allows me some access to the joy of the joy of the uh, memories of the joy that we we held together as a family. So I'm I'm desperate to talk about them, especially wow. to people who knew them. And and you are. In the right place because I'm sure we'd all love to hear about it. I want, <laughs> I want to go back, if I may, to the day or days after you lost Ruby and Hart. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming, you know, people, family, your community 
began to respond. And you said at the beginning of the yeah. show today, you had a misconception around how mm. grief should be treated. How how did you begin to work that out? So for anyone that is listening to this and has lost someone or a child, how did you begin to help other people? And it seems awful, really, that in your time of grief, you have to help others help you grieve. But yeah. how did you do that? How, how do you do that? Yeah. It, it it does seem awful and it does seem unfair, just as you pointed out, like we're, we're in grief and why do we then have to educate other people? And yet we're the, really the only ones who can because we're the only people who know what our needs are. And, and I think our needs change, constantly change as grievers uh, in the moment. And that's why I think it's so important for people who are grieving to to find the words to be able to discuss their needs in that moment. And so what I found was when people would come to visit me, friends would come to visit, they would, they'd be scared to say anything because they were terrified of the thought of causing me more pain. Mm. And, and that, that made them freeze up because they thought, wow, if I, if I say Ruby and Hart's names, that, that I, I, you know, he might just break down and, 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 and weep. And, and that is kind of true. I, I might've, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, I was weeping all the time and uh, I needed to weep and it wasn't a bad thing. But they also didn't even know if they said like, you know, how are you? Or um, or, or if they mentioned their own kids, it might, it might cause me incredible amounts of pain. And so I had to tell them that it, it might be hard, hard for me, but also so necessary. And so I developed this, what I called a grief spiel. And so I would pull people aside and say, you know, here's the deal please say Ruby and Hart's names. Please ask me how I'm doing in this moment because I feel I need to talk about my grief and grieving. It's such a, it's such a overwhelming experience. It's like a, a, a catastrophe has struck me, this catastrophic loss, and I have to talk about it just to even understand it, even to begin the long process of accepting the reality of their loss. I think I, think I used to think that acceptance meant like I was okay with it, you know, like, like I accept it as okay, but no, it, it's really, it's even more fundamental than that. It's just literally accepting reality. It's so hard. It remains hard. It's now more than four years ago. It is still hard for me to believe this is real. This is my reality and Ruby and Hart are gone forever. It's, it's hard. And I do a lot of work <laughs> to combat that denial. And so, especially in the early days, it was very hard to believe. And I needed to talk about it just in order to process it and integrate it. I want to ask you a little bit about the work you just mentioned. You do a lot of work mm-hmm. to to help get through that. I I always sort of remember when I've been through this experience how people talk about time as a healer. Mm-hmm. Is it your experience? Does time heal at all? Question one. And question two. Yeah. Can it do it all alone? Or as you said, there's other forms of work you need to do amidst Yeah. Time. Yeah. I I think I, I have strong feelings about everything you just said. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I feel, first of all, I don't like the word healing. I know many people do. Uh, many people in grief do, do like the idea. But to my mind, um, healing implies like it's a, there's an end to it, like you're wounded and then you heal and the wound is gone. And to my mind, I'll, I will always have two holes in my heart mm. for Ruby and Hart 
and they're not going to close, but I'm going to find a way to live around those holes. I'm going to find a way to expand my heart to allow it to accept new love and new experiences, but I am not on a path to healing in my mind. And I think, I think that sort of distinction is important, mostly in the sense that I think it helps for any griever to figure out their own words, their own words that mean things to them. You know, I don't need to tell other grievers to not like the word healing, but I'm sure they have their own words that hit them as positive or negative, you know, and it's a journey to figure that all out. You have to really engage with your grief to even figure out what words feel right to you and what words you disagree with. And so I, I think the work is really staying engaged in the grief, not compartmentalizing, not trying to bottle it up or, or you know, wish it away or, or numb it with drugs or alcohol or, you know, excess exercise or sex with strangers. Like those are all things that, that people engage in, but, and, and, and there's no shame in those things. But I think ultimately if we're engaged in our grief and really feeling, allowing ourselves to feel the pain of it, that's going to help us move through grief and not feel stuck. And, and in that sense, you're the equivalent of healing, but to my mind, it's not healing. It's more about learning to live with grief in a way that the grief feels a lot, well, the, it feels more and more bearable as time goes on. My relationship to pain has changed and, and my, my ability to engage in the here and now and find meaning and purpose and be connected to my life and find it worth living. I think that's a journey that that you have to make. It doesn't just happen over time. Like you said, it doesn't just waiting around is not going to, I don't think it's going to help you move through grief. It sounds like an incredibly long standing set of pain when I hear that as an outsider. Yeah. Yeah. The pain, you know, doesn't, doesn't really go away. Uh, I ache, I ache for Ruby and Heart every day. Um, for sure. <laughs> Many times every day, a friend of mine just asked me just a few months ago, like, when does it hit you? And I was like, it never doesn't. <laughs> I'm always hit with it. I don't forget. Even in my dreams, I don't forget that they're dead. I have dreams where they, they appear to me. And then in the dream, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. No, you're dead. So I, I never, I never forget. And I never, I never don't miss them. But, but I also have found ways of being, you know, in this life. I'm, I'm not stuck in the past. I'm not, I don't feel that stuck in the past or that I'm stuck in the moment. I've frozen in the moment of time of the crash. And that feels good to not be. Not be stuck Can I there. ask, you were with them in that crash? So that was a moment you yes. were in? Yes. Yeah. I was driving the car. My wife was in the front seat. Ruby and Hart were in the back seat. Seatbelts on, but we were T-boned by a drunk and high driver going 90 miles an hour. And they didn't touch the brakes, so they hit us at full speed. And when you're hit at 90 miles an hour, it is so you know, catastrophic to your body. The seatbelts actually hurt you <laughs> because they they cut into you. And so, I mean, without them, it would also be catastrophic. <laughs> it's not it's not worse. It's just they unsurvivable in the back seat. And I I want to ask you a question, but if it's uncomfortable for you, you know, tell me so. Mm. I want to ask you, and and I imagine. 
perhaps others have, how do you live with or not forgiveness of that driver? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a hard question and I do wrestle with it. My wife and I were seeing a therapist. We were actually seeing Ruby's therapist after the crash. She had OCD and depression and she struggled with it for several years and it's suicidality. And then we found this amazing therapist who really helped her. And you don't really overcome OCD, but she, she had it in check. She had it managed and her depression had lifted and she was feeling joyful and loving her life right before she was killed. But he came to us after the crash and said, I think I could help you. And my wife and I were seeing him and we were talking to him about forgiveness, this issue of like, how are we supposed to do this? And he said, I don't know that you have to. Who said you have to forgive her? And we're like, oh, well, I just thought like, you know, to progress in our psychological well-being. And he's like, I don't forgive her. <laughs> I want her to die a horrible, horrible, slow, slow death. And we're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> a therapist says this. Wow. Okay. <laughs> because he, of course, knew and loved Ruby. And so he was enraged. And I, I, uh, I also know the flip side, which my wife struggles with, is that, yeah, you know, lack of forgiveness, it can also lead to just bitterness and a, a rage that eats you up inside. And that does seem very damaging. And so I, I'm, I'm wrestling with it. I mean, on the one level, my, my quick answer is she has done, she, the driver, has done nothing to earn my forgiveness. I've not heard anything about her remorse or anything. And the night of the crash, she was not remorseful at all. Uh, I mean, she was drunk and high, but she was, you know, cursing the doctors, the nurses, cursing the police officers, and did not ask about us at all. I did not want to know if she'd killed anybody. So, so there's not really any grounds right now, to my mind, for forgiveness. I think you have to earn forgiveness, it seems to me. On the other hand, uh, my wife and I have gone to a men's prison to talk to these men who are who were in for murder and armed robbery, and and they were serving long sentences, and they were interested in remorse and forgiveness, and we had a talk with them about grief and also about our our feelings of rage as as victims, and it was very powerful. These men were part of a DUI club. And these men were trying, behind bars, trying to enact change, trying to prevent more drunk driving deaths and trying to change seatbelt laws from behind bars to, to prevent people from being killed by drunk drivers. And some of these men had killed people behind the wheel, uh, intoxicated behind the wheel. So, so these men had basically done the same thing that the woman who killed my children had done, and except they, to my mind, were on a, a very rigorous path of you know self-reflection and remorse and trying to dedicate themselves to preventing more drunk driving deaths. And, and I guess to that, to my mind, that would be something worth forgiving if, if, if she were dedicating her life to fighting drunk driving. That would be something. But, but again, I, I don't know anything about if she'd done anything like that at all. I, I'd like to ask you about fairness and the reason for that is when I'm listening to you, the words in my mind are, it's so unfair. You know, I don't know you or your children, 
Um, yeah. I wish I had. But that's what I'm saying to my own self while I'm listening to you. It's so unfair. This yeah. lady, with or without remorse, gets to live and curse at police officers when your children didn't. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on, on fairness? Does, does that mm. concept exist? Yeah, actually, a, a friend of of mine, he's a musician, and he his daughter went to school with Hart Elementary School, and he he composed a song shortly after the crash that called "Unfair." He's a, it's, a, it's a punk rock band, and 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 he just wails about unfair, unfair. So it's a good word. <laughs> it sure does feel unfair, and I I don't know what fairness is. I think I think a lot of my journey is about realizing how we're not in control, which is interesting because it's also the journey of someone who has OCD. That was Ruby's journey. You know, a lot of a lot of OCD behavior comes about from an attempt to control what you can't control. So if I tap a certain number of times, I'll prevent bad things from happening. Mm. But of course, none of us can do that. We can't pre- prevent bad things from happening. It's just magical thinking or magical tapping or anything. And so part of her journey was was letting go of that and trying to accept that she was not in control of all sorts of things. And now I have to feel that way too. I have to, you know, I, I, I'm not in control. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't save Ruby and Hart. And, and I think fairness, the idea that, that the world is fair, life is fair. That's, that's hoping or imagining that there's someone in control that's, that's making it work out. And that doesn't seem true to my experience of life doesn't seem fair. I think we don't, we don't get that. We just have to live, find a way to live with unfairness. When I was reading about you before we met today, something that I read, who was somebody who I read who was reflecting on having seen you speak, I mentioned that you spoke about the difference between not wanting to live and actually ending your life, so suicide. Yeah. Lots of people that joined me on the show have had some engagement with suicide. What we know about the world today, grief or no grief, is that 52% of us are lonely, uh, which is, of course, you know, 3.5 billion people statistically, um, and that there is a huge connection to suicide with, with loneliness, with aloneness, and that loneliness being a lack of connection, which I feel you were talking about at the beginning of the show when you talked about, you know, People don't want to be totally alone in their grief. However, yeah. horrendous life is as human beings, perhaps we just need connection. We need other people. So what are your thoughts on this concept of not wanting to live versus actually not living? Yeah, yeah. I felt in the early days especially that I I just I didn't want to live without Ruby and Hart. I didn't want to live in the world without them. And it was a a scary feeling to feel that untethered. I used to say it was untethered from life, just disconnected from it. And, but I didn't, I wasn't suicidal, so I didn't have any plans. So to my mind, you know, being, being suicidal is, is active. Like you've got plans. You're, you're imagining how you're going to exit this life. And uh, I, I never did that, luckily. I think part of it, is I'm just not a, I'm just an optimistic guy, <laughs> which seems strange, but I, I am, I, I remain, you know, optimistic. 
I'm not sure how that works, but that's what it is. And also, Ruby struggled with suicidality and and overcame it. And and that helped me because that was like I could never, I could never kill myself because that would be a disgrace to Ruby's memory. She fought so hard for her life. She struggled so hard and came out the other side fighting for life. And the thought that I would then throw mine away seemed seemed mm-hmm. intolerable. And the other thought that seemed intolerable was I, I knew now firsthand the pain of grief and how could I inflict that on all the people that love me? I, I'm not alone in the world. I, I, I have many friends and family and they, they love me and I, I would never do that to them because I know how, how much it hurts. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife, to my wife, you know, especially. And so, so I, I guess that, that also just helped like take that off the table, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I know now parents who have lost children to death by suicide and, and I see their torments and if anyone is listening who is thinking of this, thinking of suicide, it's it's so awful for the people left behind. If if any part of you thinks people are better off without you, you're you are terribly wrong. <laughs> These people are suffering so so greatly at the at the loss of their loved one from suicide. So I, I know that it's it's complicated and, and you can feel that hopelessness and helplessness. And, and think that that's a good idea. But, but that also, just spending time with parents whose children are gone because of suicide, that's, you, you take that off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think the grief is different depending on how somebody dies or is grief just grief? You know, I, I've come to feel that grief is grief, but, but there are definitely very specific differences in, in sort of, the day-to-day progression of it or the thoughts you have or the the way in which you relate to the world. But I think at bottom, at core, pain is pain. The pain of loss is the pain of loss and all sorts of losses, you know. It, it, it hits in a way the same. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a universality to, to grief and loss. I think a lot of people encountered this phrase early on. A lot of grief books say this and people say it. You know, everyone grieves in their own way, and I kind of disagree. Partly because I'm I'm a contrarian. <laughs> if everybody says one thing, I'm like, well, maybe not. <laughs> what about the other side? <laughs> but but I do. I, I believe it. I believe it because when I talk to people who are grieving, it 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 sure feels the same to me. You know, we're talking about the same things. We're aching, and we're feeling lonely in our grief, and we're feeling abandoned by people because they're too scared to talk to us and we're all we're all just desperately pining for somebody to talk about our dead loved ones and so and and we're all desperate to talk about our loss to talk about and process what we're going through because it becomes such a strange white elephant in the room like i i i talk about it sometimes to people saying like it's the emotional equivalent of having like a spear jutting out of my chest with blood spattering me you know if i went to a garden party and i had a spear sticking out of me and blood you know dripping down my chest everybody would talk about the spear in my chest right 
you wouldn't come up to me and chat about the weather. You wouldn't be like, you know, how about those sports teams? You'd say, oh my God, how are you doing? There's a, there's a spear in your chest. And that's the equivalent. Like, how could you not talk to me? How could you not say, oh my God, your kids were killed. How are you doing in this moment? You know what I mean? And yet, so often people, because they're scared, don't mention it. And mm-hmm. you go through you go through your day and and you know, you go out with friends for dinner and nobody mentions, Oh, and by the way, how are you doing? You've suffered a catastrophic loss. <laughs> how are you doing with that now? And and it sure helps when people do do acknowledge it because it's a it's a huge deal. It doesn't just go away. What what role do you think if any culture plays in this journey? I can hear, I'm sure the audience can hear from your accent that you're <laughs> from the US. So I'm using the word culture that could, I guess, infer religion, cultural norms, social structure. In all yeah. the conversations you, you mentioned, you've been into prisons. I'm sure from what I've learned from you today, you've been in support groups, you've read books. Does culture yeah. have an impact? And if so, what have you seen? Well, I think I did I did a little research too, which said that, and again, I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not knowledgeable about how grief practices are are done all over the world in all different cultures, so I can just speak for you know uh, America and Europe. And I know from some research that that in like the Middle Ages, you know, a thousand years ago, people were grief was much more public, or even just 500 years ago, grief was much more public. It was a public event, the mourning process. Somebody in a small community dies and and the whole community acknowledges it, and they 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 had whole I wouldn't say celebrations, but they they had a gatherings that acknowledged this loss, and maybe it's because loss was was more prevalent too. Like child loss, for example, was so much more prevalent. So many people died in childbirth, or so many children never made it past the age of two. Infant mortality was huge, with diseases and and lack of medicine, and so in a way it was more normalized and now with our culture the hospitalization of of illness means that you're taken out of your community in the last days often you're medicalized and and your community is sort of divorced from the process of death death and dying and as a result it becomes more and more taboo and not spoken of and unseen and so i think our culture contributes that way and then also I think there's like a real sort of denial. People don't really want to engage in the reality that we're all going to lose loved ones, and yet we don't talk about it. You know, we talk about love to children, but we don't talk about loss. But kids are going to experience loss. And so I think we think we're protecting them. And and it was my experience that Ruby and Hart's friends were perfectly capable of engaging with grief and talking to me in grief and sharing their grief. And in fact, they were more, more open and more emotionally available and helpful to me in my grief than many adults who didn't know what to say. You know, I had kids come up to me and just launch right in and talk about how much they loved Ruby and Hart and, and they would share stories and then they would, they would tear up and adults would sort of hang back and be like, there are no words, (laughs) you know? And yeah. it's like, well, that's not really helpful. I love what the kid's saying. 
give me the kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> they haven't been acculturated to, they haven't learned that you're not supposed to talk to the grieving people, <laughs> you know? So that, oh, that no part words. Of you hear that often, right? I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I've said it and perhaps not in the occasion of grief necessarily, but I, I certainly feel that phrase in my heart when you say it, because there are times in life when the words that mm. go through your head is or are, there are no words for this. Movie. Yeah. 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 So, so I'm a writer and I, I've written a, a book about grief called Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. And I, and I also wrote an article on The Atlantic about this very topic. And, and I, I want to preface that I, I understand completely that people who say there are no words are, are saying it out of love and they're saying it as a, as a way to try and acknowledge the profundity of my loss. You know, they're trying to honor just how profound my loss is. And, and I love that part of it, but the part that I struggle with is that very often that would be the end of the conversation. Because you're saying literally there are no words and that's, that's it. And that, and that was all we got. And so they would say that to me, they'd hug me, they'd say, there are no words. And then we'd look at each other like, and nod, like, mm, yeah. And then that was it. And it's like, dude, the kid here is, is, is a lot better than you because <laughs> this kid has lots of words and they're talking and talking and these words are great. And they're just honest and simple and straightforward. And this kid's not trying to fix me. He's not trying to take away my pain. He's just sharing, or she's just sharing their pain and sharing their love for my kids. And that's what I want to hear. And that really helps me. So, so I started to think, wow, where did this phrase come from? There are no words. And how did everybody know to use it? Because I was bombarded with, I was told there are no words literally hundreds of times. It was crazy. I was like, oh my God, everybody's saying this to me. It's so bizarre. I would get it in emails. I'd get it in cards. I would get it in texts. I'd get it in person. And it's like, well, who taught all these people to say this strange phrase? Why is this the thing that people say? And so I started to have a really negative reaction to it. And so again, no shame. People have said it, and I've said it, and 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 some people, you know, they they read my book or they read the article, and they like, oh my God, Colin, I'm so sorry. I don't know if I said that phrase or not. Like, don't worry about it. I wasn't keeping track. It was literally everybody. <laughs> I don't know who said it to me. They all, everyone said it to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't sweat it. <laughs> but, but yeah, it started to be, it started to feel surreal how often I'd hear it. Mm. Isn't it strange how, and for me, even hearing you today, and potentially it's because I found you through your article on the Atlantic. So I probably oh. started my relationship <laughs> with you with that. But it was oh. the, the phrase that came to mind as well, naturally, when, when listening to you, which is, Fascinating, as you say, really, how you know societies across the world have fallen on those on those few words. Mm. Yeah. Do you have other children in your family today? I do today. Yes. So Ruby and Hart were were our only kids, but Ruby, when she was alive, she said to us one one night, like, "We should foster adopt." And we're like, "What?" And she's like, "Yeah, you know, there's so many kids out there who need families and." We are such a loving family. We should foster adopt some kids who need need love. Oh, it was such a beautiful thought. But I was also felt like I've got two kids. I'm overwhelmed already. <laughs> I'm good. So after Ruby and Hart were killed, a, a week after they were killed, I said to my wife, you know, we could be parents again. We we could foster adopt. And she said, Thank God you said that, because I was thinking the same thing, but I was scared. 
that you would be too scared to try again, you know, to, to try to have a family again after what happened to us. And so we, we took the courses. You have, to, you have to train to be a foster parent and take classes and get certified. And, and today we are, we are fostering to adopt uh, a brother and sister, a 13-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl. And so we have, we have kids in our home again, which is, which is amazing. And also just simply challenging to just be a parent of teenagers who you just met. That's challenging. And of course, they have tremendous trauma and tremendous grief of their own. That's why they're in the foster system, right? So they have a lot to work through. And then we do too. So here we are trying to be great parents to these kids. And yet we are also, you know, wrestling with our profound grief. So it's, it's, it's definitely an undertaking. <laughs> it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, not, yeah, not uh, for the faint of heart, for sure. But, but it, it is also, it can be incredibly beautiful that, and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to uh, have kids in my home uh, and, you know, do math homework with them, which they hate, <laughs> but heart hated math homework too. Ruby, not so much. She was pretty great. <laughs> But you know, about at math, but yeah, yeah. I think I thought I thought when Ruby and Hart were gone and, and we were in this house with empty bedrooms, I thought on such a visceral level, like what a privilege it is to have children in your home. I took it. I never took it for granted, but I, that aspect of it, I did. The idea that it was this incredible privilege that I had. Now I was a very active dad. I was definitely not like checked out or or taken my time with them for granted. So I don't have regrets on that score, but, but yeah, it just hit me, you know, like, wow, what, what an amazing thing to be able to parent kids. And so, yeah, here we are, here we are with two new kids. Phenomenal. And what a beautiful way to bring to life Ruby's words from that evening, right? Many, many months and years ago. I think that's a phenomenally powerful reality that you're living through. And what I really love about what you just said there is this not taking for granted our children. Now, I'm not insinuating for one moment that that I or my listeners do, our listeners do. Yeah. But when we're in the, you know, the ring of life and we're flying through and we're organizing work and childcare and lunch and pack lunches and, you know, all of these things, yeah. I think we take a lot for granted just because we're we're in too much of a rush often to stop and really consider what we've got. Yeah. And I think that's a really profound statement for listeners to take away, you know, hoping that you as a listener perhaps haven't had to go through this experience in your own life, but you do have children. And that is a very powerful statement, which is just to take a moment today to really, and every day, in fact, to really recognize what we've got and the gift that we have been given as parents, because whether you have lost children or never been able to have children, which is more and more apparent for so many want to be parents from the world. Our yeah. communities, our people, our families are a gift and not everyone gets to share as long with them as they'd like. Yeah. Yeah. There's moments where I'm like, oh my God, why, why can't, why can't you, you know, why do you throw the towels on the floor every time and leave your food wrappers <laughs> in the bed and and then I'm just like, it's it's okay. It's really okay. You know, yeah. uh, you, you failed that math quiz. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, You're alive and here we are together and it's all, it's all right. 
I want to just ask one final question. You mentioned earlier that you're an optimistic person, which I think mm. is a phenomenal asset for anyone. What brings you joy today? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a tough relationship with joy because there's so much of it is, is wrapped up in guilt. It's hard for me to feel joy, like unadulterated joy, because there's always a part of me that's like, well, Ruby and Art Heart aren't here to share that joy. And also, how, how can I feel this joy? And yet intellectually, I, I know that that's, that's not helpful. And it's not like, it's not honoring Ruby and Heart to just be suffering and miserable. <laughs> they wouldn't want that. They love me. They they want me to have a good time. They They were fun kind of wild adventurous spirits and so i could i can feel them like encouraging me to feel joy so so i try to i try to what brings me joy i i do love parenting that does bring me joy when when uh, when these when these kids you know have friends over the house and they're laughing it's pretty great hearing them laugh especially knowing how much trauma they've been through you know and so so that's pretty joyful. And then I love traveling. So my wife and I have been able to travel a little bit. And I love I love that. I love seeing new places and being with my wife, having date nights. <laughs> and friends and friends bring me joy. Yeah. I I'm not surprised to hear that all of those examples come back to being with the people you love. Because I think you know, we continually, us and the media that we consume, continually encourage us to find joy, you know, to search for what makes you happy. And there must be, you know, tens of thousands of books with the word happiness in the title. <laughs> and so often when you get someone to answer the question, they do it very similarly to you, which is to talk about people and not things or unnecessary places, but moments, which is a beautiful yeah. way to end what has been both a very eye-opening but a very heavy conversation uh, simply yeah. because all of us have to grapple with life and death and what that means. As we spoke about extensively before we came on air, this show is anonymous first because we want to allow as many people to engage in the conversation as possible without bringing our identities and our context and our names into it. But I do always ask at the end whether you would like to remain anonymous or you'd like to share your name, your location, in your case, your work. So I want to open that up to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I also feel like there's there's can be a lot of shame in grief and, and child loss in particular. And so I, I love not being anonymous in that sense and normalizing that. So my name is Colin Campbell. And I live in Los Angeles with my wife and, and two kids that we're in the process of adopting. And, and I've written a book called Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose that I hope people read, especially people who are feeling like they're struggling with their loss and grief or struggling with understanding somebody else's loss and grief and, and wanting to help them. So yeah, and thank you for having me. Thank you. I mean, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing so candidly, not just with us today, but I know with the thousands of people through your book and your conversations. Mm. I really hope that as listeners, you do find the words, not just in life's most difficult moments, but in life in general. Because if we are going to reconnect ourselves and create more empathy, create more understanding, 
we have to speak and we have to listen. And those are both skill sets that are a little bit of a dying art out there for many of us. So thank you for joining us today, for coming through this conversation with Colin and I. I hope it really has helped you fill some of the gaps in understanding and experience. And Colin, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing and thank you for continuing to do the work you are to help many more people out there go through a journey that so many of us spend our lives hoping we'll never have to. But thank you for being here today. Thank you, Mimi. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi UU. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi UU Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.